So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series over the last several weeks now looking together at the transformative ethical vision that Jesus gives to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to be looking at, as has already been mentioned, what is arguably the most difficult, counterintuitive, against the grain of our natural self command that Jesus gives us in this text. Here Jesus calls us to turn the other cheek, to walk the extra mile, and to love not only our friends, but also our enemies. Eugene Peterson tells a great story that relates to this text, and I think kind of illustrates the difficulty that we have with it. Now, before I tell you this story, many of you will know that Eugene Peterson was one of the great writers on spirituality and spiritual formation and whatnot in the last uh, uh, several decades. He went to be with the Lord this last year. Uh, He was also the guy who uh, translated uh, the Message Bible. So that's Eugene Peterson. Anyway, uh, when he was in the first grade, a second grade bully named Garrison Johns picked Eugene out to be his victim. This is what Eugene writes. He says, I'd been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing, bless those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me, some sixth sense that bullies have, I suppose, but most afternoons after school, he would catch me and beat me up. He also found out that I was a Christian, and so he taunted me with Jesus, sissy. I arrived home most days bruised and humiliated. My mother told me that this had always been the way of Christians in the world and that I had better get used to it. (laughs) Thank you, Mom. (laughs) She also said I was supposed to pray for him. Well, one day I was with seven or eight friends when Garrison caught up with us in the afternoon and he started jabbing me. And that's when it happened. Something snapped. For a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness. And I grabbed Garrison. And to my surprise and his, I was stronger than him. And I wrestled him to the ground. I sat on his chest and pinned his knees to the ground with my arms. He was helpless and at my mercy. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good. And I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson in the snow. (laughs) This is Eugene Peterson, you know, the message Bible guy. I said, Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. And then he says, my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. (laughs) Now, there, there was something so beautiful, something so delicious and satisfying about a story of a bully who gets what's coming to him. And I think that's one of the things I love so much about that story. And quite frankly, I, I liked the outcome better than if it would have been, you know, and my mom told me to pray for him, and so I prayed for him. And, you know, over time, God changed his heart, you know, or, or over time, God changed my heart by praying for him. I'm like, no, hit him, you know. But there's something in us that when we're hurt, we want to hurt others. Don't you find that impulse within you? And yet Jesus in our text is calling us to something that is counterintuitive, very countercultural, that runs against our grain, that it feels oftentimes unnatural to us, and yet that is incredibly beautiful and life-giving. Jesus calls us to actually love our enemies. Now, many people have said that this makes Jesus, of course, the impractical idealist. 
in a great sermon. If, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached this incredible sermon on loving your enemies. And you can actually Google it and get it on YouTube and listen to it. It's worth listening to once, twice, three times every day this week or whatever, but listen to it. It's fantastic. But in this sermon, he counters this objection that Jesus here is being an impractical idealist with these words. He says this, far from being an impractical idealist, Jesus has become the practical realist. The words of this text glitter in our eyes with a new urgency. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization, love even for enemies. And you know what King says for our civilization and for our world is also true for our own relationships or our families. It is love that will save our families. It is love that will save our relationships. It is love even for enemies. Now, it's easy to think of an enemy in an absolute and extreme sort of way, you know, as somebody who is on the other side of the world with a hidden stockpile of weapons that are aimed at us. And those indeed are our enemies. But there are other kinds of enemies. And I'm talking now about people who just don't like us. You know, sometimes we can uh, think about this in such grandiose big terms that we can actually miss the practical implications of what Jesus says here for our own home life. Uh, some of you may have read uh, Dostoevsky's uh, uh, great novel, Brothers Karamazov, but in this novel, there's a character named Father Zosima, and he refers to this doctor who he said, who, who just loved humanity, loved to express like how much he loved, loved humanity, but he just hated people. He couldn't stand people. And he wrote this. He said, the more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. In my dreams, I often make plans for the service of humanity. And perhaps I might actually face crucifixion if suddenly it were necessary. Yet, he says, I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together. I know from experience, as soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs me and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men. One, because he's too long over his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. I become hostile to people the moment they come close to me. But it has always happened that the more I hate men individually, the more I love humanity. Anybody relate at all to those words? You know, you just love humanity. You know, I think about college students. You love everybody on the campus, but you can't stand a roommate, right? And you can't stand those particularities about them. But I, I think what Jesus wants us to do as we read this text is he wants us to consider those people in our lives this week who hurt you, people who don't like you, maybe people who you love, but quite frankly, I mean, you love kind of, but you don't really like them, family members. You have a difficult time with them, and quite frankly, they have a difficult time with you. Well, I want to invite you to call those people to mind as we look at what Jesus says about enemy love in our text. Now, Jesus' teaching here on enemy love could be divided into two sections. Uh, there are two sides of the same coin, and each is introduced by that now familiar phrase, you have heard it said, which is contrasted with the words, but I say. And the first deals with the negative. Jesus is going to tell us first what not to do to our enemies. And then second, he deals with the positive, and he's going to tell us what to do to our enemies. 
And the first command is about creative non-retaliation, and the second is about difficult and beautiful active love. So let's together uh, look at what Jesus says here. Are you ready for this? You're not, are you? Sorry, we locked the doors today. You cannot leave. But let's look first at what Jesus says about creative non-retaliation. Look what he says here. Verse 38. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Stop there. So this is a quote of a command that we read not once, not twice, but three times in the Torah. Exodus 21, it says this. If there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Leviticus 24. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. And then Deuteronomy 19, show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, I think to many modern readers, what strikes us is how barbaric or how harsh or how retrograde this all sounds. But I think to the original hearers back in the ancient world, this was incredibly humane. And it was humane in at least two counts. For one thing, it was the ultimate statement of human equality. This law was known as the lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. And it was really a moral advance because it said, look, every eye is as precious as everyone else's. The eye of a prince is worth no more than the eye of a peasant. But for another thing, this law guarded against vengeance that was blinded with rage. And so in the ancient world, if a man gouged out another man's eye, if he wanted, he could gouge out both of his eyes, and then he might even want to kill him and harm his children if he could. And in contrast, the eye for an eye ensured just retribution so that the punishment fit the crime. But look at what Jesus does. Jesus takes this law, the lex talionis, eye for an eye, and he takes it to a whole new level. He says, verse 39, he says, But I say, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, it's easy to misunderstand and misread what Jesus is getting at here because on one level, it sounds as if Jesus is saying, look, just be a pushover, uh, be a, a, a doormat, let people walk all over you. You know, don't resist evil, just let it have its way. But that's not at all what Jesus is saying. You see, for one, Jesus himself was an opponent of evil. And Jesus was out to deal with evil in this world. It was Jesus who went into the temple and turned over the tables and drove out the money changers with a whip. And it was Jesus who confronted the hypocrisy of the Pharisees with stern words. And it was Jesus who came into the world announcing the kingdom of God had come and therefore the kingdom of darkness was going to flee. He was establishing the good, saving, justice-bringing, healing reign of God in humanity. And so he was driving out darkness and evil. 
And one of the things that it means to be his followers is to participate with Jesus in his work of driving out the darkness in the world, to be advocates of God's justice in this world. And so Jesus is not telling us in this verse to lay down and to be a doormat. I think one of the problems is the way our Bibles translate the word in Greek that is translated in my Bible, at least, is do not resist. You see that in verse 39? He says, do not resist the one who is evil. So this, this word in Greek can actually be translated as resist in the passive sense, but if it's in the active voice, it can be translated as retaliate. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at here. He's calling us not to retaliate. He's telling us to not repay evil with evil. Or as uh, one translation of the New Testament done by a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright put it, he said, but I say, do not use violence to resist evil. Or as another translation in the New Testament done by David Bentley Hart says, but I say, do not oppose the wicked man with force. And so do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, look, he's saying, don't use evil to try to defeat evil. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says, repay no man evil for evil. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But to the contrary, if your enemy, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is what Jesus is calling us to hear. You see, as a general rule, and I think probably maybe you have this in your own experience and in relationships, as a general rule, hate begets hate, and violence begets violence. Darkness begets more violence. Has anybody here ever ended an argument with your spouse or with a roommate or with a friend by calling them a name after they called you a name? Oftentimes what happens, it starts to escalate. I remember back when I was in uh, elementary school, uh, they had uh, these yo mama's so fat jokes. Yo mama's so fat, she, da, 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 and yo mama's so fat, she, you know, and you'd go back and forth and back and forth and it'd get bigger and bigger and bigger until finally one kid was slugging the other one. And this is what happens. Insult begets insult. Violence begets violence. Darkness begets more violence. It's as if it feeds on its own energy. And this is good psychology. It's good biblical theology. And it's just common sense. Mark Twain, in his uh, great little book, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, put it like this. Huck, a feud is this way. A man has a quarrel with another man and kills him. And then that man's brother kills him. And then the other brothers on both sides goes for one another. And then the cousins chip in, and by and by, everyone's killed off, and there ain't no more feud. But it's kind of slow, and it takes a long time. And this is what Jesus is telling us we need to avoid. Revenge, payback, tit for tat, only keeps the wrong in circulation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this. He said, the only way to overcome evil is to let it run itself to a standstill because it does not find the resistance it is looking for. An insult is looking for another insult so it keeps it alive. You know what he's talking about? But he says, resistance merely creates further evil and adds fuel to the flames. 
But when evil meets no opposition and encounters no obstacle but only patient endurance, get this, he says its sting is drawn and at last it meets an opponent which is more than its own match. Back when I was uh, younger, we used to go over to my grandparents' house and uh, over Christmas time and whatnot, and we'd always had these family games that we'd play. And my favorite of all of our family games that we'd play with the cousins was called Time Bomb. And so grandma had this uh, plastic time bomb, and you'd, you'd <laughs> wind the thing up, you know, and then it'd start ticking, tick, 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 tick. And then you'd start, you know, kind of passing it around a circle, waiting for it to explode on one of the grandkids. And she actually, sometimes she would put an explosive inside so that it literally, I'm just, she didn't do that. <laughs> just seeing if you were awake. But... But you would take this, you'd, you'd want to keep passing on the bomb until it detonated in somebody's lap. And this is oftentimes what we're doing in our relationships. Somebody hurts you. I mean, think about it. Somebody hurts you this week, maybe even this morning. And how did you want to respond to them? You want to take that little bomb and send it back to them and let it detonate on them. You don't want to be the only one who's getting hurt here. You want to make sure that if you get hurt, they also get hurt because someone's got to pay. And Jesus says, that's not the way of my followers. And then he gives us four concrete scenarios to stimulate our own moral imagination. Look at what he says. He says, but I say to you, he says, don't, don't keep the thing in circulation, but instead, and what Jesus is going to do with our four little scenarios, four little examples here, is he's going to show us that his way is not fight, it's not hit them back, but it's also not run and lay down. Instead, what Jesus calls us in this text, in these examples, is to creative non-retaliation. And look at the examples. He says, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So in the ancient world, a slap on the cheek was not about inflicting pain, it was about inflicting shame. It was the way a social superior would show that he was over and in charge, a social inferior. So they'd slap him upside the head. And Jesus says, when you're slapped, stand back up and look at them. You're going to hit the other face also? The other cheek also? And then he says this, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, in the ancient world, uh, the average Jewish peasant would have two articles of clothing that they would wear most days. One was their undergarment that would cover them, and then there was the outer garment. Now, in a court, you could actually sue someone and take their undergarments from them. Don't know why you'd want to take someone's undergarments. I wouldn't be at court trying to get someone's undergarments, but that's beside the point. But you, you, you couldn't take, by Jewish law, their outer garments because their outer garments would have to keep them warm at night. It was like a blanket that you'd wear at night. And so you could go and you could take their undergarments but not the outer garments. And Jesus says, if you're taken to court and they take your undergarments, I mean, imagine this court scene. They took your undergarments, you had to hand it over, and now you're just covered in your under overgarment. And he says, no, go ahead. Strip down in court and say, would you like this as well? There's some boldness and audacity there, isn't there? And he goes on, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, in the, in the Greco-Roman world, Roman soldiers could co use force to basically coerce a peasant to do their bidding. So they'd load him down with a burden and say, carry my, my load for a mile. <laughs> and the guy would carry it one mile and say, hey, um, can I carry it a second mile for you? 
And then he gives this final scenario. This is now, I think what he has in mind is somebody who, um, when you were down and out and you needed something, your enemy who had an abundance met you with a closed fist. And now, as fate would have it, they are the one in need, and now you have the abundance. What are you going to do? Jesus says, don't, don't meet their closed fist with another closed fist. Instead, meet it with an open hand. He says, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, look, he's saying, I'm not telling you to fight and I'm not telling you to run. What I'm telling you to do is to engage in creative non-retaliation. Non-retaliation that is subversive at times, that is winsome and loving and generous and gracious at times, that can melt the heart of your interlocker, of your enemy. So this is what Jesus is calling us to. Now, again, this is incredibly difficult, isn't it? I mean, this is not your natural impulse, is it? I mean, your, your natural impulse is to take a wrong and to keep it in circulation. But listen, at some point you have to swallow up the evil in yourself and put it to an end to, to prevent it from traveling any further. And of course, this is what God in Christ does. God bears our wrongs against himself. He bears his own just penalty against sin. He bears his own anger. Against, he, he absorbs it in himself rather than sending it out. Now he says, come to me and receive my forgiveness and engage in the same kind of creative non-retaliation. Now, if this is difficult, it's going to get even harder. You ready? Okay, here he goes. So now he moves from kind of the negative, what we're not to do. We're not supposed to pay them back. And instead, he says, you need to love them. This is what you should do with the people who don't like you. Verse 43, he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil as well as the good and sends rain on the just as well as on the unjust. He says, look, he says, look out at the weather and learn the benevolence of God. I mean, look out at creation and see the incredible benevolence of God. I mean, all of the rain that, that we've experienced here in California over the last few weeks, I mean, it is proof positive that God is loving to both the just as well as the unjust, Californians. But you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus' imagination, the way he views the world, he views the world as saturated with the gifts and with the grace of God. We are surrounded every day by food we did not grow, by sunshine we did not invent, by breath we did not create for ourselves. You are sustained every single day of your life by the mercies of God, by the grace of God, by the gift of God. And each day we take in sunshine and we receive rain. And, and Jesus says, look, God in his benevolence and in his goodness showers sunshine and rain on both the good as well as those people who are not so good. And Jesus says, if you are a son of this father, then like father, like son, you will become like your father and you will seek to be generous and kind and good, not just to the good people, but also to the people we name bad. 
And it's interesting, Jesus' ethics here, notice they, they are completely theologically grounded. Jesus is not just saying, go out and be good to each other. He's saying, this is the God we meet in Jesus Christ. He is a God who is generous and all gift and all grace. And he says, if you are a son or daughter of this God, then to be a child in this kingdom means you extend his generosity even toward your enemies. Now, what does it mean, though, to actually love our enemies? Because this is, this is tricky because the, the, the word we use in English called love is one of the most confusing and um, unhelpful words we have. Because we use the same word love to describe all kinds of different things we feel and think. And so, for example, I absolutely love a hand-formed, grass-fed, freshly ground beef patty that's set on a piping hot cast iron grill that sears the outside of that patty with a delightful crust, and then you put pink Himalayan sea salt over the top of it, and it's just, are you guys feeling me right now? Anybody else here love that? And, and I also love my children, but I don't love the burger and my children in the same sense. You see, that word love is very unhelpful. And of course, it's unhelpful because oftentimes in American culture, when we use the word love, what we mean is uh, we think of love as that feeling that you feel when you, never, when you get a feeling that you never felt before. This is love. I feel love. And and most of us, we don't know anything of what it's like to feel those kind of feelings that we never felt before for, um, for our enemies. Well, I have feelings that I've never felt before for people that don't like me. Anybody else in the house got some feelings for people like that? They're not always generous. They're not always kind. But this word that, that's translated in English Bibles, love, is the Greek word agape, which I, I think what Jesus is getting at here is a few different things. One, I, I think he's talking about an attitude and a mindset where you actually will the good of another because this is an image bearer of God. This is somebody who was created in God's image and they matter. And so you will and you actually work for their good. Even if you don't feel it, you want it. This is what Jesus is calling us to here. He's calling us to love our enemies. And look what he says down in verse 46. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? I mean, if you are a part of the mafia, like you, you love your brothers and you care for them. And Jesus says, look, if in church, the only people you can get along with and the only people you like are people who share your same political views, who voted for the same candidate as you did in the last election, who have the same culture and skin color or whatever. These are the only people you understand, you sympathize with, you get. Jesus says, what, what more are you doing than anyone else out there? That's the game everyone in the world plays. Jesus says to be one of my followers is to have a, a much larger heart than that that goes out to all kinds of of people. Now, what is it going to take in order for us to cultivate this kind of love for enemies? 
In uh, the, the sermon I referred to earlier from Martin Luther King Jr., he, he, he asks that question, and one of, the, one of the ways in which he answers it, I think this is brilliant, he says this. He says, look, if you are going to actively love those who don't like you, so stop right now and think of somebody who doesn't like you. You there? Now let's go around and name them. Go ahead. And, um, He says, if you're going to love these people, he says, number one, he says, the first thing you need to do is analyze yourself. Because there's sometimes, sometimes people don't like you because they just don't like you. They don't like the way you walk. They don't like the way you talk. They don't like how much hair you have or, or the haircut you chose or they don't like the car you drive or they don't like it because you do your job a little bit better than they can do their job and they're jealous and they really don't like you for very superficial reasons. But sometimes there are times when people don't like you because you've hurt them. You've hurt hurt them maybe recently, or maybe you hurt them a long time ago. And for some of you, the reason why maybe you you aren't talking, you're kind of this fractured relationship in your family, your adult children are not talking to you, and you think it's just them, and they just stopped going to church, and what's wrong with them? Maybe you've contributed to that. Maybe you're part of the problem. And this is important for us to consider, I think, globally. You know, um, I remember back after 9-11, one of the first uh, presidential election cycles, I remember watching both the Democratic primaries as well as the Republican primaries. And I remember when it came to discussions about uh, the war in Iraq and uh, what was happening in the Middle East and terrorism and all this stuff, the, the unified voice across both left and right was, was basically kind of the posture was to inflate the virtue of the United States and to inflate uh, the vice of other nations. And I remember there was one voice on the stage whose uh, name was Ron Paul. I don't know if you guys remember Ron Paul, but uh, I remember he, he got up and just spoke something nobody else would say. He just said, you know, they're, they're bobbing us because we're got our, we've got bases in these other parts of the world and we're overstepping our boundaries. And I can't do a good Ron Paul impersonation, but, but you kind of just felt like on edge, like, is he really saying this? And he was actually being self-reflective. Now, don't get me wrong, I believe it's important for any nation to have moral clarity and to be able to identify that there are things right and there are things wrong. But no nation has the right to have ignorance and willful ignorance about our own follies and our own vices. We need a self-awareness as a nation. And sometimes, you know, when you look at the global scene, you can exaggerate our own virtues and the, own, the goodness of the United States, and then we can exaggerate the vices of all these other people. And that, this is exactly what Jesus is saying. This is not going to lead you to love people well because love involves self-understanding. Now, of course, what happens globally also happens in your own home, in your own lives, in your own relationships. You hurt somebody, you don't even see it. Sometimes you're wondering, like, why is my, why is my wife so cold to me? Well, you don't see it, but everybody around you does because you're a jerk. You're not nice. And the reason why, she, I'm not looking, by the way, at anybody back there. I know I was looking over here on this side. Scott, I didn't, I caught your eye, but I don't mean you. But we need to be willing to analyze ourselves. The second thing Dr. King suggests is you also need to be willing to see the good points in your enemy. 
He said, sometimes you need to look over and you need to say like, yeah, this person, they burned me and they did this and they did that. But there are some good things about them. They're not all evil. And he says, recognize the good things in, in, in your enemy and you'll start to, to cultivate this, this mindset that's more positively inclined toward them. But what Jesus gives us here is neither self-analysis nor enemy analysis where you're seeing the good in them. What Jesus tells us to do here, I think involves both of those, but it's a practice that every single one of us can engage in. Look what he says in verse 44. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So do you want to cultivate enemy love? Jesus says, here's the training wheels. Here is the first step. Start to pray by name for people who are your enemies. I don't know how you felt when uh, Pastor Robert was up here praying for ISIS and Kim Jong-un. I was like, I don't know if I want to pray that for those people. (laughs) And yet, yet, this is what Jesus actually calls us to do. He invites us to pray for our enemies. This is, of course, what Jesus did. The imperial power of the day, Rome, violent, brutal. The people that were oppressing Jesus' own people, Israel. The people that stripped Jesus of dignity and that put him through an unjust sham of a trial. When they're nailing him to the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And this is what Jesus invites us to, to join with him as prayer for our enemies. I want to close with this. Um, in 1963, uh, this picture came out kind of in the press. And Dr. Martin Luther King had had the Ku Klux Klan come and they put a cross on his front lawn and they burned it. And he woke up the next day He put on his best suit. He walked out front with his small son. And nonchalantly, he walked over and he picked up the burnt cross. He set it down. And then as the story goes, he knelt down and he uttered a prayer that God would bless and help those people who had put this cross on his lawn. You know, a lot of people in our country, when they think about somebody who really preached loving your enemies, you know, the prophet of enemy love, what comes to mind in this country is Dr. Martin Luther King, right? I mean, he's the great moral voice of loving enemies. Now, of course, he had his flaws like all of us do, but he was a follower of Jesus. And actually, there was something more profound going underneath the surface of his heart and life that there was a well that he drew upon in order to engage in this kind of life, and it was a relationship with God. He said this. He said, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Now just remember that next time you're in an argument with your spouse or with a roommate or with a sibling or with a parent, instead of diminishing evil, your comments, your hurtful words actually multiplies evil. He says this, through violence you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie nor establish the truth. 
Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate, and so it goes. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Love is the only thing that can turn an enemy into a friend. Where did he learn that? Friends, this is the God who we meet in Jesus Christ. The God who became flesh and blood among us and who was slapped on the cheek and whose beard was plucked out, who was whipped with a cat of nine tails, who was laid out naked on a cross in utter shame. And in glad self-giving and sacrificial love, he dies in order to make us friends of God, in order to bring us back into relationship with God. And God invites us to come to himself and experience reconciliation through the sacrificial healing love of Jesus and then to go and be his agents of reconciliation in this world. It is the self-giving love of God that reconciles us with God and it is his self-giving love that ultimately is remaking all things.